the more I prepared for Colossians 1, the more I felt like this, that was not the message that I was supposed to preach. And um, then I sat down to read a little book that I've been reading through. It's really good. It's called Pray for the Flock. I would actually recommend this to people who aren't pastors, but um, it's a small little book, but he's talking a lot about prayer and the expectation of prayer and how prayer transforms the church and transforms the pastor and the, the members and just God's purposes. And he came to a section talking about Mark 11. So I want to read this morning, if you'll stand with me, starting in Mark 11, verse 12. And we've got a a large section to read, but um, let's read it together. It's the word of the Lord to us this morning. On the next day, when they left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they they would go out of the city. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered up from the roots. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to him, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he is he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, All things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged in the way that we pray this morning. The expectation with which we pray, the faith that you give in prayer, Lord, that we as a church and as individuals would see fruit in this church for the glory of God and in this community. Father, I pray that you would guide our hearts this morning, that the conviction that you've placed on me for my uh, lack of faith in this area, Lord, would increase, and that you would help me by your Holy Spirit to speak clearly and concisely about what you have shown me through your word. I pray, Lord, you would be our fruit giver, that we would not go out and seek to make fruit of our own, but, Lord, we would rely on you, our creator. 
Father, I come against any distraction. I pray, Lord, that our children would listen and hear your words this morning, that they would be encouraged in their faith, that we as adults, Lord, would hear your word and begin to increase in our faith and our desire to pray and to cry out to you. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. I read this whole section not because we're going to preach through the whole section, but because in this gospel, these events are not separate. These events have a purpose. The way that they were written in this narrative, this story, is on purpose. So when Jesus comes to Bethany, or they're leaving Bethany in verse 12 of chapter 11, and he becomes hungry, this is not happen chance. This is the determined will of God to prove and to show the people of the disciples specifically what Jesus is about to teach them in verse 20. We can't get to verse 20 until we deal with the other things. It's like a sandwich. Verse 12 through 14 is the first piece of bread. Verses 15 through 18 are, is the meat or the peanut butter and jelly if you're a kid. Um, and then lastly, from 19 through 26 is the other side of the bread. And we can't understand it unless we understand the first two parts, because I really want to hone in on verses 20 through 26. But if we don't start in 12, we don't understand 20 through 26. So in verse 20, verse 12 through 14, what is going on? Jesus sees a tree that has lots of leaves. He says, well, maybe, maybe I'll find a fig on it. I'm hungry. Why? Because a fig tree should be giving figs. Now, we know in this story, it says it was not the season for figs, but Jesus was still looking for fruit. But because there was no fruit, he cursed the fig tree. Isn't that interesting? That it was out of season, yet Jesus cursed the fig tree because it did not bear fruit. And this curse is a judgment of God against the tree. Right? It's not, it's not like he spoke some uh, magical, mystical words against this tree. Like, right? What does he say? May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Interestingly, this is coming from the Creator. Right? We've been talking about the last two weeks in Colossians. Jesus Christ, the Creator of the universe. He is beyond all that we could ever know. He has no beginning and no end. He is Lord of all. Is, is He first place in our lives? And this tree is showing that if God curses or pronounces judgment upon something, it will no longer bear fruit. And that's what's happening with this tree. But is Jesus cursing an, an object, a created thing, just because? He's angry, he's, he's hangry, as we like to say. He hasn't eaten enough, and because he's hungry, 
He gets angry at the tree and curses the tree? No. That's, this is an object lesson for the disciples and for us today. Because when we get to verse 15, we see a shift. This is the meat. This is why Jesus is using this curse. Because when they get to verse 20, we see the result of the curse. But in verse 15, it says that they came into the temple. And what did Jesus do? Did he go in and just act like nothing was going on? No. What's the first thing he does? And began to drive out those who were buying and selling. What had happened? The temple was now the flea market. Right? People selling animals to be sacrificed and changing money because how dare they use money that has Caesar's emblem or icon on it to pay the temple tax. We can't do that. But that wasn't the worst part. They were overcharging for these animals and they were charging people to change money. Exorbitant rates, worse than when you go overseas. Those of you that have ever had to exchange currency. So they are taking, and the, the worst part is, it's all the priests, the, the priestly authority that's not only allowing this, but benefiting financially from it. So Jesus is truly angry with righteous anger. Verse 16, it says, And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. Now, why would that be? Why would he be so upset about this? Because what is this doing? It's preventing the worship of the true God. If you're, all you're doing is hawking wares and, and changing money, is that going to give opportunity to worship? No, it was preventing many people from even being able to worship because they were charging such exorbitant fees for the animals and the exchange rates were so crazy that many people could not worship. And it didn't matter because it was so loud and crowded because of this that there could not be quiet. And so when Jesus gets to verse 17, he says to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, there's a couple things that we see in this. It's a house of prayer. It's not a house where we come and, and hawk our wares and, and try to make a living. No, it is a place where we come to meet with God. That's what he was saying. My house. But what's the problem? They have made it a robber's den. So these men, instead of people being able to come and have worship and relationship with the Almighty God, what are they doing? They're being robbed. But he doesn't just say, he says a robber's den. What is a den? What about wolves? What is a den for wolves? It's where they live. Jesus is saying, robbers live in my house. You've got to get out. You don't belong here. 
So if it's a robber's den, is it a house of prayer? Is prayer actually happening in this religious setting? According to Jesus, it's not. All they're thinking about is how they can take the money of the people of God. We all have seen or heard of churches that do this. That all, all they do is cry out for your money when you go in during the service, and then after the service, and you leave thinking, do they actually care about me, or is it just my money they want? But the church of God is called to be a house of prayer. And we've heard the message that... um, Jim Cimbala preached on the house of prayer. And having visited there once, I don't remember anything about money. I remember expectation. I remember the joy and the gratitude of God on prayer night, the excitement to come and to pray together. But what were they, why were they excited when we went? Because prayer was a foundation of this church. It wasn't just throwing up hopeful, maybe this will work prayers. And that's what Jesus, I believe, is getting to when we get to verse 20. Because Jesus is, is concerned because the religion of Israel is fruitless. They are the fig tree. They look all religious. They look like they might have fruit. But in reality, the tree is bare. And it's bare, and I believe this is going to be seen in verse, verses 20 on, it is bare because it is not a, praying, a prayerful religion. They are no longer communicating with the living God. They are doing everything just because that's what they're supposed to do. It's not about relationship with Christ. And we see that in verse 18, because it says the chief priests and scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. They didn't like Jesus calling out their false religion and their money-making scheme. They didn't like this. This was not the Jesus they wanted. And so they began to seek to destroy him. And in verse 19, we see that because of different reasons, probably lack of place to stay, Jesus and them leave the city in the evening in verse 19. And then it says in verse 20, As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree Withered from the roots up. From the roots. How many of you have seen that happen? It usually starts at the limbs, right? Because there's not enough fluid to, to keep the whole tree, so you'll start seeing branches die. The whole thing, overnight. When God pronounces judgment on something or someone or a church, 
It doesn't matter what you do, it will wither from the roots up. This judgment of the fig tree is a picture of what happens when the people of God stop praying. When the people of God stop following God. When they stop making Him Lord of their lives. It says in verse 21 that Peter was reminded, Oh yeah, you you cursed that tree. Now it's dead. So Jesus, and he says to Jesus, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. This word cursed is the word for judged. It's not just a curse like a witch would place on something or a voodoo whatever, a warlock. No, this is the judgment of the almighty creator of the universe saying, you are done. There is no more hope for you, tree. You're done. Now, I know you're all feeling sorry for the tree. What did it do? It, it, did, it was not even seasoned. The tree didn't deserve this. Unfortunately, I think a lot of PETA people would not like this passage or the, all these earth-saving, tree-hugging people. But Jesus is making a point He is making a point to the disciples that if you are not bearing fruit, then you will experience the judgment of God. Look with me at John chapter 15. We all know this passage because of what it says about the vine. Starting in verse 2, he says, Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. So, going on in verse 4, he says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear its fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither you can unless you abide in me. What is Jesus saying? If we look at John verses here in Mark 11, what's the problem? The people of Israel were no longer abiding in Christ or God. They were not abiding in Him. They were abiding in their own strength and they were trying to bear fruit through their own means. Continuing. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. How do we abide in him? Let's, let's continue. Verse 
Verse 6, he talks about what happens if you aren't abiding in Him. And then in verse 7, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Verse 7. It's the first time. He's going to say it three times in 15 and 16. Ask whatever you wish. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. The problem with the church, or the people of Israel and their worship, they were not bearing any fruit. They were fruitless. They looked like they should be bearing fruit, but they were fruitless. So turn back to Mark 11. Well, keep your finger in Mark or John 15. But... We see here that God is glorified when we bear much fruit. That is the call of the believer. That is the call of the church of Jesus Christ to bear fruit. What does that fruit look like? It looks like sharing the gospel and seeing people saved. It looks like the fruit of the Spirit coming forth in our lives. It looks like the gospel being proclaimed no matter where we are. Looks like hope in crisis. Looks like joy when there should be mourning. It looks like Psalm 1, if you turn there quickly with me. Verse 3. He will be like a tree firmly planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Why? This tree that's here portrayed in Psalm 1 is meditating day and night in the Lord of the law of the Lord. It's delighting in God. How can we delight in God if, if we... Don't even delight in conversation with Him in prayer. Because if you look at the Old Testament, you don't see often the word prayer or pray. Often it's people talking to God as though I was talking to you. Not that they don't pray in the Old Testament, because we do see that. But it's, it's incredible how often in the Old Testament you just see... Um, Prophets and leaders talking to God. That's prayer. That is relationship. That's conversation. That's what prayer is. It is is a relationship with God that is two-way. It's not just us bringing our request to God. It is us hearing the voice of God. We have His voice recorded in the Bible, but to actually hear His voice, and be led by His Holy Spirit. So I keep taking you places, but back to Mark 11. But Jesus wasn't surprised that the tree withered. Right? Because Jesus says in verse 22, Have faith in God. Jesus had faith in God, and that's why he was not surprised. He knew this would work because he was doing the will of God. 
He was proclaiming the truth of what happens when we do not bear fruit. Look at verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever... Oh, whoever? You mean even some newborn believer? Yes. You mean some old person who's about to die believer? Yes. Some middle-aged believer? Yes. Every believer. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast in the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that he that what he says he is going to happen, it will be granted to him. So the only issue is whether we're doubting or believing. If we believe, well, you, you sound too much like name it and claim it. Did Jesus give us a, an exception here? Did he say, well, if it may be? No, Jesus is not playing games. That's why he said the word mountain. That is impossible. I believe the reason we don't see many prayers answered is because we have not asked with expectation. How many times do we ask God to do the, the minute things because we're afraid to ask Him to move a mountain? We're afraid to ask Him to do the impossible. Jesus is not saying here, Molehill. He is saying, mountain. It is not an accident. Turn with me back to John 15. Well, we're going to be in 11, but I want to continue to prove this point. Again, John 15, 7. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Does Jesus give us a stipulation? Yes, if we abide in him, that's it. Because Jesus knows if we are abiding in him, we will ask according to his will because we have a relationship with him. We have two-way communication with Him. We spend time in prayer because we expect God to move. We spend time in His Word because we expect God to speak to us. We spend time with Him because we delight in Him. Look at verse 23. Sorry, I I misspoke. I lost my verse. Sorry, verse 16. Verse 16. 
You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you would go and bear leaves? No, bear fruit. And that your fruit would remain. Not, Not fruit that is spoiling. Good fruit. Fruit that will continue. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give to you. I did not plan to preach a faith message this morning, but that's what it is. God wants to encourage us as believers to stop making prayers that are just, well, hopefully God can do this. Is it possible that in my life, and I believe God convicted me of this, that I have been asking God to do things that I think are possible instead of asking Him to do what I believe He really wants done? Have I stopped asking Him that this church would be a transformational place for the lost? Do I believe that? Yes. But instead I'm praying weak prayers. God, just give me an opportunity to share the gospel with you know this, this one person. Not that we shouldn't pray that, okay? I'm not downplaying that. But is it possible that our prayers have become so small because we have made God after our own likeness? We're looking at God like He's another man instead of the God of the universe who says that we go and bear fruit and our fruit will remain with the purpose that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He may give you. But Jesus isn't finished. John sixteen twenty three. He says, In that day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly. So this is death and resurrection foretold. Right after that, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, He will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full. I don't want us to go out of here thinking, well... Caleb doesn't like our prayer requests. No, I'm not saying that, okay? But is it possible that we have stopped asking God for the difficult because, or the impossible, because we don't believe that God moves mountains anymore? I don't know. If I may use an example, and it's not from somebody specifically here. Oftentimes I hear people saying... Well, so-and-so is going to get a test. Let's just pray that the test will come back negative. I'm not against that, okay? But is that asking God to do the impossible? I, I don't know. It's asking that no matter what the result should be, that it will come back negative. What if we started praying, God, we want you to heal this person, so that when the test is taken, 
It will prove and glorify your name. What if we changed the way we prayed? What if the way we prayed was specific? What if it was a prayer that showed, and when the results came, it was like, there's no way we could say this was not God. What if we made prayer more specific? And I'm, I've been thinking a lot about how we pray. Growing up to now, even in our prayer meeting. I've thought a lot about why do we pray in English? I asked Megan and Joseph this the other night. And they both had answers, but this is not to downplay anyone, okay? But I don't think it was the right answer. The reason we pray in English is so that when God answers, we know He's the one who did it. Not that we don't pray in the Spirit, because that's important too. Not to downplay one or the other. But the reason we pray in the language that we know is so that when God answers the prayer, we cannot deny that it was God who answered because God put it on so-and-so's heart to pray for that person, that specific thing. And then when God moves through the power of His Holy Spirit to transform the, the life of that person, to bring healing, to bring deliverance, it is impossible to say, well, you know, that just happened. Again, I'm not downplaying speaking and, speaking and praying in tongues. I believe that should happen. But that's why it's so important when we pray in English that we are seeking God. How, how do you want to move? What is it that you want to do in this person's life? What does your word say about their situation? And then when we pray, pray believing that God will hear us and that He will move that mountain. That He, as He said in John 15 twice, and John 16 once, that whenever we ask for the, the purpose of bearing fruit, for the fruit of God to be evident in our lives, in the lives of this church, that through that, God would give us the answers to prayer. Why? Because this is about His kingdom. This is about His glory in this place and in the lives that we have opportunity to speak into. This is the point Jesus is making. He's saying, you want to bear fruit? Start praying. Not just asking God for in conversation. He, he's dealing with that specifically, but having a relationship with the living God. This is something that Jesus gave us, right? We can come through to the throne of grace, Hebrews. Boldly, not with trepidation. Oh, oh God, I have a situation here and I hope, I hope you'll do it. I hope you help us. Is that how we approach the throne of grace? No, he says boldly. Not because we're fearful, but with joy because we know he cares about us. We know he loves us. So we stand before him and say, God, your word says, by your stripes, I'm healed. Lord, I know this situation is a mountain. In the world's eyes. No one has been cured of this ever. But you 
are the mountain-moving God. Transform this situation. I was reading about this, this singer. I don't know her whole story, but this young woman was diagnosed with scoliosis, which comes on at a, in your teen years. And if you look up scoliosis on Google, guess what it says? No cure. No cure. But guess what? God doesn't read Google. He doesn't care what Google says or what MedEx or whatever the, the medical websites say. This girl was healed completely. She's 20-something now. God is still in the business of moving mountains. The question is, have we made him a molehill mover instead? Are our prayers asking because we believe that God moves mountains, or are our prayers asking because we only believe God is something more like us? This is convicting to me, okay? I'm not, this is not just for you all. This is for me. So often I go to God because I don't think I can figure it out myself. God is saying, come to me. Come to me with each of the people in this church. Come to me with the needs of this community. Come to me with the need for the lost to come to salvation. Come to me with the need for discipleship in the churches that I know of. Come to me because I care. I will move. But you have to come to me because I want fruit in your life. I want fruit in this church. I want fruit in the people of this church. But you have to come to me because you will bear no fruit unless you are abiding in me. And then we get to verse 24. If you haven't heard this, this verse before, you didn't live in the time of Brother Hamilton. <laughs> therefore, in light of what Jesus just said about moving mountains, therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. He doesn't give a, an explanation that you need to work out unless, unless, unless this, 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 and this. No, he's saying, bring them to me. In light of this, God wants us to bring forth fruit. Unlike the fig tree. We are to be fig trees that are covered with fruit. Fifty, a hundred, a thousandfold. Now, is that how we approach the Lord? Do we truly believe that when we come to Him, that He will answer our prayers? Not that Jesus, that God is like a celestial Santa Claus, as Mr. Hamilton said, that we just, we have a, a list and, and we just send it up and hope that He'll give us something. 
No, we, we believe Him, so we take Him at His word. Your word says, Lord. You say you care for us. I know we have experienced in this church loss that we can't explain. And I don't know why. But I am tired of downplaying the God of the universe because we're afraid to ask Him for what He said to ask for. I'm afraid we have become, again, sorry, I'm not trying to throw you all under the bus. I was really blessed by Miss Wazork's testimony this morning. The devil doesn't have a right to our lives and our bodies. We have been transformed through the blood of Christ. And I want to see God's move in our church, but it will only happen if prayer in faith is the norm and not the exception. Is prayer a significant part of our relationship with God? I have to admit, it's not where it should be in my life. And that is why this book has convicted me and why this message is so maybe coming across strongly to you. Because I want to see God move here and I am realizing the reason God has not moved in my life and possibly in this church is because I have not spent the time praying that I should be. I want the first reaction to hard news, or difficulty to be, I'm going to the Lord because I want to spend time with Him because I know that He can deal with this. Whether it's a mountain or not. We shouldn't just take mountains to God either. So I want to be careful with that. We should take all things to Him because we can do nothing without Him. John 15, 16. Are we going to abide in Him? Or are we going to sit back and hope that we can figure it out? That if we work hard enough, if we think hard enough, if we rally the right people around us, that somehow God will move. That doesn't happen. We need Him. This is supernatural fruit. It will not happen without Christ. Now, at the end of this, Jesus does give us a stipulation, forgiveness, or lack thereof. If we have unforgiveness and bitterness, that will disrupt the move of God. That will disrupt answer to prayer. And so before we go to prayer, we we should be constantly seeking God Lord, is there bitterness in my life? Is there unforgiveness? Am I mad at Joel because he did this? I don't know. Am I, am I upset with uh, Mr. Wazork over something I don't even know? He didn't bring enough uh, barbecue last time or something. He didn't save me any. That's probably it. Uh, 
am I upset? It, it's amazing. I, I, there was a situation that I didn't realize I had become extremely bitter over. It wasn't with anyone in here. But when I realized that I was being bitter, it was really hard for me because I do feel that person needs to ask forgiveness himself. However, I had allowed bitterness to come into my heart, so I was responding to him, no matter the situation, with bitterness. So I had become the offender, not just the offendee. And, but when I sent a text to that person saying, I'm sorry, there were things that I think you did wrong, but that does not justify the way I have thought and treated you. Please forgive me. It was, they did forgive me, thankfully. And though there's still things that God needs to do there, I am thankful that after that, it was like the windows of heaven were open again. Have we ever experienced that? I think we all have, where there was bitterness and it was like, we didn't realize it was bitterness until we started praying and asking God, like, why won't you hear me? It's like God saying, <clears throat> Mark uh, 11.25, No, Lord, I'm not bitter at anyone. Uh, remember the guy at the gas station that cut you off for the good pump? Remember the guy at the stoplight that sat through a whole green light with you in front of them? Remember that person during COVID who bought the last nice chunk of beef off the shelf and there was no more meat in the, the, the supermarket? Remember when you went to the supermarket and you saw that person grab five gallons of milk and you were coming for your kids and there was no milk to be had? This selfish person? It's amazing how bitterness comes into our lives. But when we are in a right relationship with God and right relationship with others, then our channel is clear. That's what Jesus is saying. When we have a right relationship with God and with our neighbors, then we have a Green light. Ask. It's just like, how many of you get in your car and you, you put it in drive and you think, hmm, I'm not sure that when I push the pedal, my car is going to go forward. How many have that problem? Well, maybe at one point Joel did. <laughs> but... Typically speaking, <laughs> typically you get in and you expect that somehow when you push the pedal, that's going to cause gas to come up into your engine and propel you forward. You don't say, hmm, I don't know. I think I'm going to wait this thing out. I think I'll just walk. It's 105 outside. Well, I'm just not sure that this is going to work. No, we get in the car, we put it in reverse, push the gas, 
Whoa, we go backwards. Why? We expect it to work. We expect the green light. When we push the gas at the green light, we're going to go forward. But with God, oftentimes, we go to prayer without expectation. Because we have forgotten God's promises. Let us go to God and trust Him for what He said He would do. I know He is faithful. And I know that we all have situations, some more difficult than others, that seem impossible. But God says, Have faith. Whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Is this for you today? I think it's for all of us. Whatever the situations we're dealing with, the loved ones, the, the lost ones, we can come to Him. God can move those mountains. The question is, do we believe in a mountain-moving God or not? Let's pray. Father, make us a house of prayer. Not just because it's what we do, but because we believe that when we pray, you will answer. Lord, give us a love for one another, to encourage one another and to pray for one another. Give us a love for our lost family and friends and neighbors. Cause our love for you to be poured out in sharing the gospel and praying for the lost. Father, our children need you. Grandchildren and great-grandchildren. There are so many who need to hear the truth So we pray for them, Lord, that you, by your mighty power, would transform their lives. We have siblings and and aunts and uncles who do not know Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that this morning you would transform their hearts. There are some here who are going through physical trials. And we ask, by the power of Jesus Christ, who raised us from the dead, to bring healing to their bodies. Father, you aren't limited in your strength. You are the mighty, powerful God. So we bring these requests to you and ask you to increase our faith this morning. Teach us to trust, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.